Father, we come before you and ask that you would bless your word. Uh, John chapter 12, help us to learn and glean from that what it means to be a seed that falls to the ground and dies. Uh, Help us to get the theme, help us to get all the info that it would benefit us and those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. This chapter, uh, the theme, if you are going to give it one, would be sacrifice. Uh, over and over here, it, it, it caused me to really look inward, as I'm sure it will you, uh, to see if you're in fact doing what you're supposed to be doing because you have Mary, the brother of Lazarus. She sacrificed the most precious thing to her. You have Lazarus who actually died uh, for the others to come to faith. Uh, Jesus talked about his own sacrifice, about a seed falling to the ground and dying and then producing. Uh, Jesus also was born to be a sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed his own desires and did the will of the Father. And many of the Pharisees refused to sacrifice their position in order to follow Christ. So we have the anointing of Jesus and the cost appraised. Of course, this is about Mary, and she used the pure nard or the spike nard and anointed Jesus with this. And there was some opposition to that, and a value was placed upon it. John chapter 12, verse 1 says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Mary served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So Mary would be remembered for this act, according to Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14. Wherever the gospel is preached, she was going to have a mention in this, and it is true. Now, the spike nard, or nard, it came from the Himalayas around Nepal and China and India, and it was made for perfumes. It was also a medicinal uh, ointment, sometimes used in cases of insomnia. Uh, but it was extremely valuable. And Mary cracked this open, broke this in order to anoint Jesus. We know that this was for his burial. And it was extremely expensive. And immediately after this is when Judas went out to betray Jesus. If you go back to Mark um, 14 and Matthew chapter 26, right, it's sandwiched in there the Pharisees, had a meeting at the palace of Caiaphas and figured out, or tried to figure out how to kill Jesus, get him and kill him. And at the end of this particular section, we have Judas going to them uh, to get him turned in and get him killed. Now, number one there, we should willingly give up anything to follow the one who is everything. And that's what Mary was doing. Do you guys remember which Mary this was? It tells you in the previous chapter. It was the Mary who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus. It says that in the previous chapter. So, uh, what should we be willing to give up in order to follow Christ? And, you know, you start evaluating this. And first, would you give up your house? Would you give up your car? Would you give up your wealth? If you have a savings account or something like that, would you give up position? Would you get up your freedom, uh, any power that you may have? Would you give up your father or mother, sister or brother? I won't mention father-in-law or mother-in-law because that might be a little bit easier for some. But this idea of spouse or child, would you give up your spouse? Would you give up your child? Would you give up your health in order to bless Christ? Or would you even give up your life in order to do it? If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, there are so many martyrs in that book who willingly gave up their lives 
being burned at the stake, being sawn into, uh, things like that for the sake of being a witness. And so we're supposed to evaluate that. When we read this, would we be willing to do the same thing? And hopefully we can pass the test. And if one would be a disciple, we'd be willing to give up that, which is most precious to us, just to bless him. Now going on, uh, third, Lazarus raised and God is praised. Verse 9, meanwhile, in a large crowd of Jews found out, or meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So the death of Lazarus brought many to faith. Now some would say, well, no, it was the resurrection. Well, he had to die first in order to be resurrected. If you knew, excuse me, and this is not resurrected. This is resuscitated because he had to die again. I think I mentioned that last week. Would you, and I, of course, ask myself this question, would you be willing to get so sick that you died if you knew the Lord was going to raise you up in four days? Are we willing to give up something like that? And you might say, well, you know, it's only four days. It's not a big deal. But you have to be resuscitated and live the rest of your life and then go to heaven. So you have to die twice. And that, that's what Lazarus was willing to do. Now, do you think Lazarus said, I'll do it? Or did God just do it? So if God decides to take us and just do something that is going to be quite unpleasant, are we going to be willing to do that? Anybody who calls themselves a disciple should be able to say yes. Now, this kind of revolves around what is the purpose of life. Uh, I think we have found it as Christians, but to codify it, I mean, if you had to say, what is the number one thing we're supposed to do as Christians to fulfill our life's calling? Number one would be to glorify God. Number two, I believe, is to bless the saints. We are to minister to those, especially in the household of faith. Now, it says we're to love our enemies. We are, but we're supposed to bless those in the household of faith. The third thing is, to sacrifice everything we have for the sake of Christ. If we have those three things and everything that we do is wrapped up in those three things, to glorify God, you study, you have an attitude, you have a job, you have relationships, you do it all for God, right? Uh, to encourage the uh, saints that are around us. We're involved in fellowship, we counsel each other, we teach each other, that's what we're supposed to do. Thirdly, to sacrifice all for the sake of Christ, well, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That's in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. That's what we're supposed to be doing is daily giving ourselves over to God. When we wake up, we say, God, what do you have in store for us today? Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it reads, Then he said to all of them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will find it. And he's talking about death here. When he says, pick up your cross, and then verse 24, he says, anyone who wants to save his life, like, no, I'm not going to pick up my cross, I'm not going to die, he will lose his life. What he's saying in plain English there is, if you're not willing to be the disciple he wants us to be and give up our lives, we are not worthy of the kingdom. We're not going to the kingdom is what he says. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when, his, when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so no matter how difficult it gets, God wants us to give up everything. What Lazarus did or what did he do in order to be used by God? What specifically did he do? that God used him. He died. He was his friend, but the thing that Lazarus did to glorify God was he died. And then, what did God do? Everything else. I mean, brought him back to life. The people saw him. He was the witness. People came because of what Jesus did, but also because of Lazarus. And so that's kind of like 
God, Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. If you abide in the vine, you will produce much fruit. What does a vine, a grapevine, have to do to produce much fruit? Not get cut from the main stem. If it gets cut from the main stem, there is no fruit. I don't know if you guys have ever done a vineyard. I've done some vineyards here. And you string those horizontal branches out. And you clip them just right. And then the next season, you get all these grapes hanging down. Right, And you clip off and you truncate some of them that aren't going to produce fruit. And it produces much fruit. And every once in a while, you make a mistake. And you cut the wrong branch. And when you cut the wrong branch, you might as well just take the rest of the branch off because it's not going to survive unless you graft it back in. You can't graft the whole vine back in. You have to graft in a bud. You can do that, but it's not going to produce. Well, we simply have to abide in Christ, abide in the vine, and we will produce the fruit. Lazarus did nothing except for die, and that's all any disciple has to do is just simply die. But our objective in this is to be willing. You have to be willing just to say, God, whatever you want. And by the way, I'm delivering this to you as a form of encouragement. <clears throat> you guys are here on Wednesday. I'm certainly not going to beat you over the head and say, you need to get with the stick, you know, just... You need to study more. You need. I, I'm not even going to do that. This is just a way of... An, encouraging you guys check on yourselves is that really the attitude of your heart or are you here because you feel obligated to it should never be out of obligation that we come to a study or we serve god and remember if we do this with the right attitude if we're willing we gain heaven and a rich reward if we're not willing to do so we gain nothing Now, how do you know, once we agree to die, that specifically God has things intended for us to do? How do you know which thing God wants you to do? You guys have any suggestion how you would know? If God has called you to be a disciple, he's called you to salvation, there are certain things we know we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have a devotional life. We're supposed to be... Uh, involved with doctrine, knowing what doctrine is. And then we're supposed to be diligent in the service of the saints. But how do you know that whatever service you're doing, God has called you to do? How do you know that? What's that? Bears fruit. Well, how do you know that that's the one for you, that you're not filling it in temporarily, something like that? Like, you know this is what God created you for. You feel it in your heart. Isn't the heart deceptively wicked? Who can know it? Does somebody have a question back there? An answer? Well, that's true. We pray and ask God. Do you think people have prayed and asked God if they were supposed to do something or not and they did the wrong thing? Now, that's probably, from our perspective, it's the wrong thing. From God's perspective, it was a time of testing and trial, and you go through it. But how do you know that's the thing God wants you to do? Any clue? Okay, how about, what's the guy that has the big church in Texas that it is just, over Joel Osteen flourishing yes Eric That's yes. Like Noah? You'll find great joy in what you're doing. Do you think Noah was discouraged? 
I think he was tremendously discouraged. I read an article recently about pastors and like 85% of the pastors out there are discouraged and they experience bitterness and they're leaving the ministry in droves. Of course, people are replacing them. But, it, you know, it's, it's a hard thing. And so you can't go by the fruit. You may never see a bit of fruit, right? You said by people, prayer, and what else? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that you're supposed to be doing it, right? Well, it, one way you can know also is by your gifting. God has given us all gifts. And so whatever that gift is that you have, or that gift mix, as some people have called it, you know you're supposed to be going in that direction. Like, for instance, if you have a fear of talking in front of people and you love to have the gift of helps and helps behind the scenes, you're probably not going to be a pastor teacher, Right? Some people I know that that have changed, but it's not necessarily going to be like that. You never really know, but you keep pushing open doors. How many people don't push open the doors? Tons of people do not walk up and actually, well, maybe this door will open. And sometimes you find exactly what you're supposed to be doing by keep pushing on doors. Will you make a mistake when you open up a door you shouldn't? Yeah. I've done that. I open up a door. Well, that's not the right thing to do. And you immediately just backtrack and you go another direction. But you should press on every single door and every single opportunity that presents itself. You don't know which one will produce the fruit either now or in the future. And you may never see the fruit, never see it realized. You just know that you're doing what God wants you to do. You ask the Lord for direction. Plans of the heart belong to man, but the Lord determines the steps. Right? He determines the outcome. And so you never really know, but you just keep on pushing, and that's how you can remain confident that God is guiding. But again, from this side of eternity, you might get discouraged. You might say, woe is me. This is tough. I talked to a pastor this week, tremendously discouraged. I mean, he's just down in the doldrums and uh, tried to encourage him a little bit. So that's not a clear indication of what we're supposed to be doing, but God can guide if we are submissive to him. Secondly, once we die to ourselves for the sake of Christ, the world will denounce our sacrifice. (coughs) Denounce. Uh, For instance, it was Lazarus who died. Jesus rose him from the dead, raised him up. And what did they want to immediately do to Lazarus because he was a witness? They wanted to kill him. So once we die to ourselves and we're available to be used by God for the sake of Christ, the world will denounce our sacrifice. The world is not pleased with us being a witness or serving Christ. And we have to recognize that opposition. And sometimes that opposition comes from without. Sometimes it comes from within. Can you remember which disciple it was that opposed Jesus and what Jesus said to him? Yes. And what was Jesus telling him he was going to do? And then Peter said, no, far be it from me, Lord. This isn't going to happen. And then what's that? Yeah, he he told him he was going to die, right? And Peter stands up, far be it from me, Lord. This is not going to happen. And what did Jesus say? Satan. Called him Satan. You know, how do you like that? And, And so it can come from those closest to you as well as those the furthest away. You have Caiaphas and you have the high priest and they're all trying to kill him, right? So, uh... Also says in John, and we'll eventually get to it in chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So did I give you number one? We got number two. It is only when we are willing to die that God can fully use us. That's in our weakness, he is made strong. You can't be much more weak unless you die physically, right? But now I think he's talking here figuratively. I don't think any one of us, it could be, but I don't think really we're going to run into a problem where we have to die to be a witness for Christ physically. I think figuratively is what is being mentioned here, and that's what we're supposed to do.
Correct. And, you know, figuratively speaking, he says, take up your cross daily, as I just read. Well, if you did that literally, you would nail yourself to a cross and you would die. And then you can't be used anymore unless he resuscitates you, right? So he's talking figuratively as far as dying. The message is literal with Lazarus, but the intended application is figurative. That all of our desires that we have need to be crucified. And so we only do what God wants us to do. Jesus only did the will of the Father. He never did his own will, as we'll get to. Now going on here. First blanket number two is die. Once we die to ourselves. Triumphal entry in the rising of praise. Verse 12. The next day the great crowd that had come to the feast or for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And this is taken from Psalm 118 verse 25. If you look it up in the NIV or King James, it says save now. But that's what Hosanna means, is saved now. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. This is fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. This is being quoted out of the Old Testament. A fulfillment of prophecy, verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, this was foretold uh, when I went through John the last time and I went through Daniel and I went through Revelation. I think I talked about this in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. It reads, no one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. In verse 25, the total weeks that are going to transpire or they're going to go through is 69 weeks. Now, each one of those weeks is a period of seven years. So if it says 69 weeks, it's a total of 483 years. I don't want to lose you guys on this. And so the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem after, after it was destroyed took place in 445 B.C. on May 14th. If you count 173,880 days, exactly, that's when Jesus shows up. It was to the day. So, 69 weeks or 483 years that were prophesied for Jesus or the Messiah to show up It actually happened, counting from May 14th, 445 B.C. by Artaxerxes Longimanus. So as soon as he gave that decree, the clock starts ticking. And it was to the day he showed up. The Pharisees should have known this. I think some did. They were just afraid to speak up, even though it was fulfilled prophecy. And so this is a reason for faith here that it was prophesied to the exact day. I mean, do you know what you're going to be doing in 173,880 days later? Well, I'm going to be in heaven. I don't know about you guys, but do you see how that works out? You couldn't prophesy anything that far ahead. In fact, Jesus showed up on that time, which meant he was the, he was the Messiah. Number one there, God has told us in advance what he's going to do. Now, he just did that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, until the anointed one comes, the ruler of the people, and he'll be cut off. Now, God always tells us what he's going to do in advance. In Amos chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. We know exactly what's going to take place before the end comes. We even know when God... Jesus Christ is going to show back up to earth. It's going to be one of two dates. It's either going to be from the book of Daniel. It's either going to be 1,290 days, or I think it's going to be 1,335 days. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, it says, Blessed is he who waits 
until after the abomination of desolation, either 1,290 days or all the way to 1,335 days. And that's when Jesus is coming back. He says it in scripture. He's already told us. If one of us was to be here during the tribulation and we saw that, you can start clicking off the days. And he's going to return at that time. And so he has already let us know what is going to transpire. He's already told us that the rapture is going to take place. You guys remember the rapture verses from Revelation? And, excuse me, when we were in Revelation, we went over those. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. You have them written down there. It's also Isaiah chapter 26, verses 19 through 21, and John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. John chapter 14 is, In my Father's house are many rooms, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go away to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to the place that I am going. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So that's how you get to heaven is by knowing him he's the way and so all this has been prophesied we know what's going to happen we know the seven year tribulation divided into three parts he's already told us all this stuff what he hasn't told you is what's going to happen tomorrow he's told us the prophetic timeline that's all we need if he wanted us to know more he would have given us more we know where he's going to land too when he comes back do you guys know where he's going to land when he comes back from heaven Mount of Olives, that's right. And in, in the scriptures here, it talks about Jesus being in Bethany. Bethany is at the Mount of Olives. Jesus resurrected from that region, which is the Mount of Olives. Bethany is just right over the top of the Mount of Olives. And the disciples were there in Acts, I think it was chapter 1, and they're watching Jesus go up. So this angelic host shows up and says, what are you guys looking for? Now, Jesus is going to come back the exact same way he left. So we know he's going to come back. And in Zechariah chapter 14, he's going to come back right there. And then the ground's going to split to the north, to the south, right to the gate. Beautiful. And he's going to walk through there. So we already know all of that. It's been prophesied. And so we don't have to worry or fret about what's taken place. Now going on, the cost of following Jesus is to be appraised. Yes? Number two. Oh, I didn't even give it to you. First coming verified, second coming prophesied. So it was verified by him showing up 173,880 days from the decree of Artaxerxes. So it was verified. And the next one is prophesied. So we know exactly when he's going to show up to earth. Now, again, I mentioned this. But what is going to take place before he comes back as far as we are concerned? For us. Rapture, that's right. The rapture is going to happen. The rapture and the second coming are two separate things. They're not the same thing. Some churches teach that it's the same thing, and it's not. It's not the same thing. The cost of following Jesus is to be appraised. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus doesn't even respond to their request. He says four things. In verse 23, 24, 25, and 26. There are four statements here. Jesus replied, he didn't say, I'll bring them on over. He didn't say that. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To me, that's a non sequitur. He is talking about something completely different than this request that Andrew and Philip talked to Jesus about. He just switches completely, not just gears he switches vehicles. He, he goes somewhere else. He, everybody else was in a, a Ford van. He gets out in a snowmobile, you know, something like that. It's just completely a non sequitur here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Secondly, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Thirdly, a man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life fourth 
Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. <laughs> so what, what is he doing here? These guys want to talk to Jesus. If you showed up and you wanted to ask Jesus a question, what would you ask him? <laughs> These Greeks wanted to talk to Jesus, right? So what is it they want to ask him? We don't know. We can only speculate. They probably have something like, are you really the Messiah? You know, are, are you the one that we're supposed to count on? Is, you know, we have some Old Testament scriptures here. Are you fulfilling? They probably wanted to grill him a little bit, right? <clears throat> or maybe they had some healing issues that they needed to take care of or they were representing somebody and they're going to go back and tell them. We don't know exactly what was going on, but he doesn't even address them. He simply says, it's time for me to die. Then he says, a kernel of wheat must die in order to produce fruit. So he's linking the two. First, he's going to die. He's going to produce fruit. Then there's a kernel that must die, and it cannot produce fruit unless it dies. Who do you think the kernel is? Us and the Greeks. That's who he's talking. You know, the Greeks are there. And he goes, a kernel must die to produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times. I already said that, well, Jesus is going to die. So we can take that as a given, right? But he is now talking to the Greeks. He's telling them, you must die to produce fruit. Then what does he say? If you don't want to die, you're not going to heaven. That's a strong statement. Let's read it again. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So he's telling these guys, they show up, they want to talk to him. All he's doing is turning to them and go, die. He's talking about dying to yourself. Yes. yes, figuratively, yes. right? We're, we've already established that. It's figurative. Even though he is going to go to the cross and die literally, he's telling them, any desire that you have, it needs to die. If you don't die, you don't go to heaven. I talked to another pastor about this this week. Well, I'll tell you who it was. It was Drew. Drew just got back from Calvary Chapel Bible College in Jerusalem, teaching there six weeks. And had a big grin on his face, and he said, only three students complained about me this time. The last time, all the students complained about him because he taught this, that Jesus wants us to be a disciple and we have to forsake everything. Now, some of you guys know Drew. Drew's like uh, reckless abandonment, right? And so that's what he taught over there. We get that when we go to Cambodia. Wherever else we go with them, we get this idea. You have to die. You have to serve Christ. You have to forsake everything in this life. And that's it. And that's the only thing God will be satisfied with. And he taught this. And I said, I was sitting there with him. And I said, what, what did the students expect? And I mentioned that I was going to teach John chapter 12. And he goes, unless a kernel falls to the ground and dies. He just quoted it back to me, you know. And... That's what the students at the Bible college were not getting. And, and so they, they think they're going there just to have a great time. They weren't supposed to be called to account to be a disciple. Now, again, I'm giving this to you guys as a way of encouragement. I'm not giving this to you guys as you're not living up to the standard of perfection. That's, none of us can be perfect. The point is we have to be willing and so he ends it by saying, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. Follow him where? To death. In the context here, you must follow me to the cross. You must give up everything. As we'll see later, Jesus was submissive to the Father. And so that's what's being taught in those four verses there, those four statements. And we're supposed to examine ourselves. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine ourselves or examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Well, how do you know 
if you're passing the test. The four things that are listed in the book of Acts, you're in fellowship, you're in prayer, you're getting the apostles' doctrine, all of those things, you're breaking bread, you're participating with the body. You know that. You're producing fruit. You're having failures along the way. You're pushing open every door. You're saying, okay, how can I serve? That person, you know, you know who is saved, right? You can tell. There's no mistake when you point to somebody that's a Christian, you go, now they're saved. You can point to them and say, they're an example, right? And then you look at some and you go, I don't know. You know, they've, maybe they come to church. I don't know. Have they really died to themselves? I mean, this is, this is heavy stuff. I know that there are pastors that go out and just beat people over the head with this. Like, you better get on the stick or, boy, fires of hell are going to singe your toes while you're even still here. You know, and they do the fire and brimstone thing. Jesus is just telling us the standard. He's just saying, this is it. Reach for this and you'll do fine. Now, he's able to make a stand in this, right? Number two, we are to be like Christ not only in death but also in life. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. And John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So we are to be like Christ, not only in death, but also in life. We are to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. Jesus is born to die that we might be raised. Verse 27. Now my heart is troubled. <clears throat> and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And so Jesus came to earth, became a man simply for the task of dying. Now, he, he did several other things, and this is where you get the theme of sacrifice. So far, you see it's just sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, right? You have Mary, you have these Greeks showing up, and that's all Jesus is really talking about. But he was troubled. Now, if he's God and he knows everything, I immediately have a question. Number one here is Jesus is troubled. Now, this idea of being troubled, do you think Jesus doubted? I agree with you. I don't think he doubted. Like, is this really the Father's will? I think he knew that this is the Father's will. But what is it that he was troubled about, and what did he ask God for, the Father? What did he ask him? At this point, he made a request. Before that. What was the request? Okay, that's true. That's a rhetorical question. But there's something else that he asked. Now, you may not see it there. If it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. You remember he said that, right? If he is God and he's omniscient, does he know if it's impossible or possible? Why is he asking the Father? For their sake. No. It's just him. Do you think he is afraid? No, he, he's perfect love, right? He is the Word of God. Fear not. I don't think he was afraid. Yes, see, that's... When you start to open this stuff up, you go, wait a second, something doesn't make sense here. Now, the only thing that doesn't make sense is my understanding. I don't have the understanding of what's taking place here, but Jesus himself, he's troubled. 
Now, trouble, the word that's used in the Greek here, is where you have a low-lying depression of water and it's completely clear like the rain has stopped, the water has settled, and there's some fine silt on the bottom of the pond or the lake or whatever, and you take a stick and you go and mess that up. That's what you do. It's called roiling the water. That's what Jesus was inside. He was disturbed inside. He went to the Father and he said, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. But why would he, why would he ask the Father, would it be possible? Well, I think it's in our understanding. Now, I'm going to say this again because I, I mentioned this before and people, they didn't quite get it. And I'm going to talk about it again just a little bit. First, Jesus is God, second person of the Trinity. He is omnipresent. Do you believe that? Is he everywhere at one time? Is he in a body? Is Jesus in a body? Is he in a body now? Is he omnipresent now? How is that possible? But yes, it is. He can lie. He can't lie. That's impossible for God. Okay, so try to answer this for me. If he is in a body, he's going to be in that body forever. How is he omnipresent? If he's, and I believe he's God. There we go. Power of the Holy Spirit. You remember. <laughs> That's good. Okay, so... If he is God and he's omnipresent, it happens by the power of the Spirit. They are one. And so wherever the Spirit is, Jesus is. But his body is right here. How is that possible? I have no idea. I cannot fathom it. I don't know. But if Jesus is saying, Father, if there is another possibility, may I have it? Does he know if there is another possibility? He must not know. Is he God? Is he omniscient? How can he not know? Exactly. How can he not know? How did he not know the day of his return? Scripture says that too. But he is God and he is omniscient. He did not know who touched him on his cloak. And I know pastors and even commentaries, they try to say, well, he just said that for the sake of the people. I'm sorry, you're reading into the text. It's not in the text. He didn't know. Yes, if you write it in, if, if uh, Jesus did it just for the sake of the people and he didn't really mean it, it would mean he's a deceiver. And he is not a deceiver. In the Old Testament, who showed up and walked with Adam in the cool of the garden? It was Jesus. It was a Christophany. Did he ask, Adam, where are you? Did he know where Adam was? No. He didn't know where Adam was. Is he omniscient? By the power of the Holy Spirit, he's omniscient. You see, our understanding of how that works lacks. But I, I want to make sure that we are able to defend this when somebody who is an atheist walks up and says, you say Jesus is God, but Jesus is omniscient. Well, what about these things he didn't know? And if he's in a body, how is he omnipresent? Well, we have the answer. It's by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And I've told the church before, I didn't come up with this on my own. One person that I learned it from was Os Guinness. Os Guinness, if you read some of his stuff, uh, no, it wasn't Os Guinness, it's the other guy. I'll think of his name in a minute. But it was at, at a, um, a seminar that I was at. And it, you know, it just brought so much enlightenment to the way the Trinity operates a little bit. It gives us limited knowledge. Jesus is definitely omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's all-powerful, all of those things. But if you gave him a rock to lift, right, in his human body... Do you think he could lift it? Well, maybe, but he has 
sinews and muscles just like us. I mean, there are limitations to the physics. Now, if he wanted to use his power, he could just speak to it and it would raise, right? But as far as his limitation is concerned in his body, we have to make sure we don't confuse what's going on. So there is the Trinity. Jesus is the second person. He has all the attributes of the Father. It's just our understanding lacks on that. Now I want to go on from here. And we can talk about that later if you want to. Secondly, when we find out God's will for us, we are to be willing, sacrificially obedient. Willingly, sacrificially obedient. Those are the three words that are there in number two. When we find out God's will for us, we are to be willingly, sacrificially obedient. Whatever he asks us to do, our heart needs to be willing. If we're not willing, we're, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. And we need to be sacrificial in it. Now going on, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it. Jesus was submissive to the will of the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 19 Jesus says here, I tell you the truth, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. In John chapter 12, verse 49, For I did not speak on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. So we see that Jesus is definitely submissive to the Father. But number four there, Jesus is equal to the Father. He is equal to the Father in his essence, but in his <coughs> position as the Son, he is submissive to the Father. But he is of the same stuff that the Father is made of. They are equal as far as that concern uh, is concerned. John chapter 14, verse 9. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus is equal to the Father. He's just submissive to him. And Jesus' purpose was to glorify the Father. In verse 29, the crowd that was there and heard it said it thundered because God the Father spoke. Others said an angel had spoken it to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit and not mine. You see that? So he, he clearly makes a distinction there. When something is done that is a miracle or miraculous, he says when it's done for somebody's benefit. He's not hiding the cause of these things. He's not trying to deceive in any way. He didn't try to throw his voice. It was simply the Father. He's the one that did it and is for the benefit of the disciples who were there and also any Jews that would have been around. Uh, God reaches out, number five, to banish doubt. God reaches out to banish doubt. And that was the purpose of the voice. It gave faith and hope to the disciples and all who would come after Christ and his crucifixion. God wanted to make sure that there were sufficient miracles for individuals to believe, to hold on to. Verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And there's a double meaning here. When he's lifted up in height on the cross, he'll draw men to himself. And also exaltation, rank and position. He is exalted to the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He has suffered and he was made perfect under his suffering and he will be exalted to a place where he's going to be judge over all. The father has given all judgment into the hands, it says. Verse 33, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So the double meaning is there. And we know according to Philippians that he was given a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So everything has been put under him as a footstool, so to speak. Going on. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They were kind of clueless here what's going on. And being lifted up means crucified. And these people were just simply unfamiliar or they were ignorant about the suffering servant in Psalm chapter 22 and also Isaiah chapter 53. It talks about how his, he's all out of joint, how his mouth is dry, his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth, he divided their garments amongst them. 
All of these things, he, he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. All of these things were prophesied in the Old Testament and the fact that he would be cut off according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. All of those things apply. That is in Scripture. Verse 35, then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Trusting in Christ is what makes us a child of God. That's it. That's all that's required. Now, is it a genuine faith? Well, is your trust... Your belief genuine. If it is, then you're a child of God. Then you might say, well, am I dying? That's where examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Are you dying? Not in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense, to all your cares and desires, everything that surrounds you. So it's simply trusting in Christ. That's what makes us a child of God. We become sons of light if we trust in the light. And of course, we know that that is a euphemism for Christ, light and Christ, right? Verse 37, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for this reason? They could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. And so there is a curse on the nation of Israel, and I stress the word nation. It is not on the individual that prevents them from coming to Christ. Because we know, Scripture says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. God is willing to save any one of them. But as far as the nation is concerned, the nation has been blinded for a period of time. And a curse has come on them. That's why the city was ransacked in 70 AD by Titus. And so this curse, are some people cursed where they just cannot see? The curse that we have is our own pride. And that is the next thing here. The only thing that keeps people from believing or for believing in order to be saved is pride. That's it. The Jews can be saved still individually, but as a nation, God has that nation in his hand, and that nation is under a curse until he comes back, until their eyes are open, until he restores all things. That's why they are surrounded by all of their enemies on all sides. That's why the United States has been saying, we're not going to help you so much. You know, Hopefully, the next president who gets in there will be agreeable even to make Jerusalem the capital. I don't know if you saw that in the news, but one of the candidates says he's going to do that. Verse 42, Yet at the same time, many among the leaders believed in him, because, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they love praise from men more than praise from God. Eight, pressure from peers can prevent praise to God. When you guys got saved, did you go to your family members and all your friends and immediately tell them you got saved? How did they respond? In my case, it wasn't fist the cuffs, but it was close, you know? The peers, and then your friends, your good friends, you got to tell your good friends. I got saved. I lost a girlfriend over it. I went to the girl and I said, she was my girlfriend at the time, and I told her I'd become a Christian. She goes, I don't know if I like Christians. And we soon broke up after that. And so um, anyhow, you know, those people, the peers that we have around us, they might prevent praise to God because we are afraid. We don't have to be afraid of the rejection. Who would you rather be rejected by? A girlfriend, a person, a family member, or God? I put my vote. I'd rather be dissed by somebody human rather than by God. Number nine, we are to fear God and not men. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both 
soul and body in hell. Going on in verse 44, then Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. And of course, this is a reference to the great white throne judgment. It is listed in the book of Revelation. For I did not speak on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So with this, the theme is sacrifice. We understand that if we are unwilling to give up everything, our chances of going to heaven diminish, right? We are really not what we claim to be. This is hard to swallow, And so God wants all of us to become disciples. This inevitably leads to the debate, can you be a disciple or can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? I've said this before. Don't get trapped in that debate. Just be a disciple. I mean, it's that simple. We don't have to worry or fret. The other thing that's with this, we have to communicate this to others. If you see somebody that is really not following Christ and they claim to know him, grab them gently, verbally. Say, come on, be a disciple. Come with me. Go to study. Let's learn these things. Let's talk about them. Let's experience fellowship. We are commanded in Scripture, specifically pastors are, to encourage one another to love and good deeds equip the saints that's what a pastor is supposed to do but this is also for all of us and so if you see somebody that you think well they're a christian maybe in name only you know there's the uh, there's a saying republican in name only right is there one out there that says democrat in name only there's not i've never heard it but there is the one republican in name only So what am I saying? Be a Democrat? (laughs) What I'm saying is we should not be a Christian in name only and we need to communicate this gently with respect to others and say, come on, let's be a disciple. Let's just go for it. With that, I'm going to leave you with one other thing. And this isn't even related. This is a side note. There is a chance that we are going to go back in November to Louisiana and get a group of people uh, to go back there. There's 100,000 homes that have been flooded. There are people living in their homes with the flood damage still in there. There's black mold growing in these homes. The people have nowhere to go. It is... Bay St. Louis. Remember Bay St. Louis? It's like that, and it's going to be worse because it's still hot. And so that mold is growing. Uh, So in November, we're looking at, I think it's November 9th, and we'd be going for a week over there. Um, And we may even contact churches in the area and maybe get a big group and go there is a place to stay there is an old 24-hour fitness center they have cots but uh, they recommend blankets or sleeping bag Uh, they will put us up for free they have showers there they have a section for the men they have a section for the women and uh, it's it's a huge undertaking so uh, if you think you might want to go certainly be praying about it it's still in the planning stages the date may change it may shift one way or the other but it's a fantastic way to go back there and be a witness and it's not just to do the work it's to be a witness it's to give them the gospel it's to help out all we can so that's it any questions yes yep the second death i was reading about the second death yes 
No. Second death is when, for instance, we live our lives. Should, from our perspective, the Lord tarry, we don't get raptured, we die. We are going to be resurrected, if we're believers, in the first resurrection. Those people who are not resurrected in the first resurrection get resurrected at the second resurrection, which is the great white throne judgment. So they die physically first. Then secondly, if they do not know Christ or they do not know God, they are cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So two deaths. Okay. Eternal punishment, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Yeah, that is known as the doctrine of total annihilation. It does not exist. When we die, we don't cease to exist, whether in heaven or in hell. We live forever in one of the two places. Okay, any other questions? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Stern words, Lord. And we ask that you would help us to take them to heart. Father, I would be the first to confess with everybody in here that we fail often, but we desire to be those disciples that you talk about. We desire to be that grain of wheat that produces fruit, uh, that which produces 30, 60, or 100 times which has been sown. We ask that you would use us. Make us a hundredfold producing uh, lot of people. Help us, Lord, to sell out completely. Help us not to try to save ourselves in this life. Help us to lose it for you and for eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.